This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor and members of the military and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at GovX.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. Welcome to episode 353 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Danielle Cook. Now, Danielle is a dietitian, nutritionist, and also founder of First in Wellness. So a great conversation with someone who's well-versed with our tactical professions and has also done studies on several departments in California as well. So we explore the results of those studies. We talk about nutrition, gut health, sleep, 
and a host of other wellness areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does make us more and more visible to people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether for a business or a department. So all I ask in return is that you take these incredible men and women's interviews and help share them so I can get them to every single ear hole on planet Earth that needs to hear them. And one last quick plug, the book I wrote, One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter, is now out on paperback and Kindle, and you can find that on Amazon.com or Amazon.wherever you are in the world. So with that being said, I introduce to you Danielle Cook. Enjoy. So Danielle, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Santa Cruz, California. Um, it's hot here, unusually hot, and uh, we have a few wildfires fires burning right now. Actually, it's pretty smoky here at my house. Yeah, and I've seen one of my uh, Anaheim close, close friends was on, I forget which one it was, the one outside LA they had. But yeah, it seems like they're just popping up everywhere at the moment. Yeah, yeah. We had a crazy lightning storm the other night. I've, I've never seen anything like it in the time that I've lived in California. And I've lived here uh, 23 years now. And I've never seen anything or heard anything like it. It was basically a dry lightning storm. I think they had some rain, but barely any where we were. And um, I mean, this whole sky was lit up and it was so loud. I, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of lighting here, but it's Florida, so we get so much rain that it's not really a big deal. We get we get fires and they, they can get big, but generally, you know, even if the lightning does kick something up, it's normally not too bad. Mm, that's a blessing. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It is. All right. Well, then starting at the very beginning, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamics, so what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Massachusetts, um, Cape Cod area. And I have, I'm the middle child. I have an older brother. He's about a year and a half older and a younger sister who's six years younger. So she was always kind of, you know, the pain. Um, both my parents are teachers. So I grew up in a household that really um, supported education and was in valued education. And so um, I grew up very curious about things and um, and wanting to learn more. So I, I definitely had that, that curiosity nurturing. Um, and I also grew up in a household where strong hard work and perseverance was really valued. And so I, and that was, you know, kind of gave me value, you know, that work hard and, um, and go out and do things and do your best. And, um, and so I grew up in that kind of household with a lot of support for, for hard work and for just giving it your best. And, and so that, that was how I was raised. Um, I grew up playing sports and, uh, I played soccer and lacrosse through college and, and I, I owe, I think athletics to keeping me on the straight and narrow and, um, 
And, you know, I, I loved athletics. And, and so I really was interested in fueling my body and staying in shape. Um, I definitely had a tendency towards overtraining, which is something maybe we can talk to about today. Uh, I think maybe a couple people listening can relate to that and, um, and, and learned kind of the hard way that, you know, training smart is, is way better than overtraining and, and definitely, you know, fast forward 20 years or so, um, 15 years or so and kind of drove myself into the ground. So, uh, that was a, a life lesson that kind of propelled me into what I'm doing now. Brilliant. Well, going all the way back, so you mentioned that your parents were teachers. I'm curious. You got mother and a father's teacher. What is their um, perception of the way that we teach at the moment in 2020? Not to demonize it, but I know you know I had some some guests. One was actually from uh, Finland, who travels the world talking about Finland's school system, and they they're very successful when you look at the world statistics. So what have they talked about with, with the way that we are doing it at the moment? Well, it's interesting. My mom was an um, elementary school teacher. She taught first through third, kind of uh, switched around grades, um, jumped around a bit. And my dad taught high school English. And so my dad's perception, he kind of did what he want, wanted. He um, taught film and creative writing. And so he had a lot more um, flexibility in what he was teaching. My mom um, was definitely teaching a lot more to the state standardized testing. So she was constantly frustrated by that, um, feeling like her hands were tied and she couldn't be quite as creative as she'd like. And also, um, I th she definitely had the feeling that she was, they're both retired now. She definitely had the feeling that she was kind of stifling her students' curiosity and, um, and again, like I mentioned, that was really important in our in our household is um, being creative and and curious and and that self learning um, and just the way that you know schools are now they're teaching to the tests these standardized te standardized te standardized tests and a lot of other stuff gets pushed to the wayside thing things like arts uh, music things that really help to um, enrich the brain and and grow learning and um so yeah so there was a lot of frustration on my mom's side my dad was a lot more happy-go-lucky about it and loved his job right yeah because it's been interesting and i know we're going to get to covid because you guys have the program as well um but with this you know covid hitting towards the end of the school year last year or early this year um here we are now four or five months into it and it's, it's partly what we're going to talk about as well today on the nutrition side I've I've seen the precautions, you know, I've seen the the hand washing and the social distancing and the masks, but I haven't seen any discussion on changing, like you said, putting more PE back into school, changing what we're feeding our children, doing the the actual prevention resilience side that will then, you know, make people less vulnerable to a virus like this. And I think the schools are a place that we should be starting to do that. Absolutely. I mean, just in general, aside from COVID is it's it getting kids at a young age and teaching them about resiliency, both physical and mental resiliency is just a, a perfect opportunity to, they're like little sponges to start teaching them that by the time they're in their twenties, thirties, fifties, it's not too late, but it's a little bit harder. Now you're teaching an old, an old dog, new tricks. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, what about when you were at school age, uh, career aspirations, what did you want to be when you were in high school? 
Oh God. I had no idea. I was busy playing sports and, um, having a boyfriend. Uh, I didn't, gosh, you know, I think the thing I thought about most in high school was, um, being a physical therapist. And again, I think that had more to do with just my love of athletics and human performance. I, I enjoyed, you know, I thought about nutrition, but I really put a lot more emphasis on physical training versus what I was putting in my body and, um, and just balancing my, uh, my stress hormones and all the stuff I know now. I wish I had known that back then. <laughs> um, yeah. So high school, I would say it was more of a personal train. I mean, I'm sorry, um, physical therapist. And I had an interesting college career. I, I went basically just to go. Um, I went to a school that had recruited me for soccer. And um, I didn't really think much about academics until about my sophomore year. And then I realized, you know, I was an English major. And the only reason I was an English major was because one of my professors said, you know, you should be an English major. You write very well. And so I said, okay. Um, and then it dawned on me that I didn't really want to be an English major and I had no clue what I was going to do with it. So I switched to, I switched schools and started studying nutrition. All right. Well, then walk me through that. So from, from your, um, college education into your first experience working in that field. So I started off in the hospitals. Um, basically, you know, you go through, I went and did a, a graduate degree in nutrition sciences and then after that, in order to sit for the, uh, the exam to be a registered dietitian, you have to do an internship. And so I did my internship um, and got hired a month early from that internship. And so I just went and worked in the hospitals. And um, I'm glad I did that. I learned about the clinical side and learned that I, I didn't want to stay in the hospitals. Um, it was... Um, the longer I worked there, the more I realized I was kind of putting a bandaid on things and I, you would go in and do patient education, but it was, um, one, they weren't really in a place to be learning and, and receptive to new information and to, um, the information we're giving them. I don't think looking back was not very helpful. Um, and then I went into, um, I was a nutrition support specialist. So I specialized in tube feedings and TPNs. Um, intravenous feedings, um, just because I thought that would be a little bit more challenging. And, and um, I did that for a few years. And then I went outpatient and started, um, became certified as a diabetes educator. And I did that for a number of years. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want me to stop or, or segue into how I actually got into functional medicine and more what I'm doing now. Yeah, no, actually, before we do that, um, I want to get to hospital nutrition for a moment because that seems to me like you said an opportunity to to bolster healing with good nutrition and and you know depending on which facility you're at i've had people on the show that said their facility you know serves incredible nutrition i've seen a lot of the hospital food given to, to the patients in hospitals that i've worked at and done clinicals at um doesn't seem to be you know the the, the top-notch nutrition so just you know as an unbiased look what was your experience with hospital nutrition? Was it was it an uh, an environment where the nutrition was was valued and and seen as part of the healing, or was it more just feeding the patients until they were discharged? I think it was a little bit of both, but I think that um, 
you know, with good intention, we were thought we were doing the right thing at the time. Now, looking back, I don't believe that we were. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the hospital nutrition and just the whole hospital environment from the lighting to the atmosphere down. But um, as far as the nutrition goes, you know, it's a lot of packaged processed foods. Um, and then we're just putting people on cookie cutter diets. It's they're antiquated and they're not very useful. Um, you know, someone comes in with um, uh, angina and we put them on a cardiac diet and it's like in the cardiac diet is, is so out of date. Um, what we're putting them on that it's not very helpful as far as an opportunity to teach a patient maybe a better way to eat and introduce them to some, some different foods that might be a little bit more appropriate to improve their, their overall health and longevity. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've seen. I mean, there's, there's such an opportunity and you mentioned lights too. That's something that a friend of mine that was on the show, Steph, she's a ICU, excuse me, ICU nurse. Um, and she talked about ICU psychosis, which I'd never heard of, but all the lights and the beeping, you know, machines was basically stopping deep, you know, good quality sleep as well. That's another wellness, free wellness tool that we have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as an opportunity or an environment to heal, it's, it's like the opposite. So that, like I said, there, there are some hospitals out there that are making strides to improve the whole environment and they're, they're starting to get it, but I think there's a long way to go. And, and that's kind of it with medicine. I mean, medicine kind of lagged 15, 20 years behind what the studies show. And, um, so it'll catch up eventually. Right. Now, just, and we talked about this before we started recording, so this isn't a shameless plug, but you had <laughs> mentioned using Thorn, which is one of the, the sponsors now of the show. I use their stuff and love it. Um, tell me about using that in the hospital setting when you were, when you were there. Yeah, it's tricky. And in, inpatient, you can, uh, you're pretty much, your hands are tied to what they have in, um, in the pharmacy. Um, and so, supplements are are very few and far between and um and they have to be pretty targeted so like for example if someone comes in with burns you can get uh, you can get away with giving them certain uh supplementation otherwise uh the doctors are typically not as open to it at least when i worked in the hospitals now this is a few few years back now um and then in my little area out here in santa cruz it's not a big teaching hospital so they tend to be a little bit more open-minded um as far as out clinic it was still a little bit difficult when i was working in di diabetes education and and these were you know we had patients, you know, and just simple things like testing vitamin D, um, uh, talking to them about antioxidants. We had a lot of, we have a lot of field workers in this area. Um, and, you know, just things to help with, um, supporting detoxification. Um, it, it was really hard and I was, on, I would go to different meetings and, um, and give presentations on specific, specific, uh, specific nutrients that we should be supplementing. Um, and a lot of times it went on deaf ears and there was a lot of resistance and sometimes we'd get a little bit of a uh, movement. Brilliant. But it's great to hear. I mean, like I said, it's, uh, it's another tool and, and I, I'm totally a believer that we should be able to get everything from, you know, what we eat, especially my profession, as you know, that's not always the case. So I'm intrigued to hear about supplementation, but you don't often hear about it in an, in a hospital environment. So it was, uh, something I was curious about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I kind of see supplements and I use them um, quite a bit where appropriate is, you know, our nutrition, our sleep, our stress management, 
um, that's all kind of, you know, as far as our health superhighway, that's like the pavement. And then we use supplements to kind of fill in the potholes. And, you know, in a, in a hospital setting or when someone is, um, their, their health has declined, that might be a setting where maybe they have a few more potholes and there might be more opportunities to, to use supplementation, even for the short term being. Yeah. Now, you mentioned about the uh, diabetes um, education knowing now what you know about functional medicine, how much was that as far as prevention and even reversal through diet and exercise or was was back then still a little bit more about the the chronic disease management philosophy that a lot of, um, uh, I guess, non-traditional medicine has, has uh, taught us recently? Yeah. So, I mean, back then we were talking about um, – you know, we had a lot of my clientele um, was a lot of field workers that would come in and clearly they were getting plenty of movement and exercise. So that was not the problem. And so I remember telling them, oh, you have to eat less tortillas. And <laughs> so now looking back, um, you know, with a more of a functional medicine training, I would have been uh, and I was looking at this a little bit back then, but I, it was a, a little bit harder to convince the doctors of this. But things like pesticide exposure and um, as as um, one of the potential um, contributors to them developing diabetes. Um, but also just, you know, um, talking to them about stress management would have been really helpful and sleep. I mean, they were getting up super early in the morning, sometimes working second jobs after that. And then, I mean, as far as nutrition, I wish I had been talking to them more about food quality and not um, so focused on the macronutrients, specifically carbohydrates. Yeah, well, that's interesting as well. I never thought about that, but I wonder what the um, the cancer rates are amongst field workers. Like, like you said, if there's a lot of exposure to pesticides, if it's that kind of farm, then, I mean, picking them all day long, there has to be an exposure of some sort. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they have high exposure. Yeah. And I mean, I do remember talking to them about like taking off their clothing before they would come in and, you know, pick up their little two year old and, and things like that. Um, but there, there, there is literature out there. I mean, I haven't looked at it in years. But as I when I started get, um, collecting that and looking at that years ago, there was already literature back then about its uh, contribution to diabetes and certainly cancer. Yeah. Okay, well, then you mentioned functional medicine. So walk me through from, you know, when you were in the hospitals to, to your journey into functional medicine. Yeah, so when I was, um, I, when I was working at the Diabetes Health Center, um, I was working there, I was working at the hospitals on the weekends, and I was also teaching an upper level metabolism course at San Jose State, which is about half hour, 45 minutes away. So I was teaching once a week there at night. Um, and then I started dating a guy um, and he'd like to stay up till 11 o'clock at night. Um, and then I was still trying to get up at five in the morning and work out. And um, so I wasn't getting enough sleep. I was really stressed. Um, I hadn't studied metabolism in a few years. So it was like I was trying to relearn everything every week. Um, and and I wasn't fueling properly and I just started getting really run down and I started developing a lot of gastrointestinal problems, um, sleep issues, a lot of weird symptoms. Um, and that kind of 
started me on this journey of trying to figure out what was wrong with me. I went to a lot of um, allopathic Western medicine um, trained doctors and they just kept telling me, oh, um, the biggest thing was heartburn. They kept telling me, you know, um, you just have too much stomach acid. You need to take an acid suppressant. So they put me on a PPI. Okay, this doesn't work. Okay, double the dose and then triple the dose. And, um, and then I was losing a lot of weight and, you know, all this weird stuff was happening. Eventually, this led me down the road to visiting with a functional medicine uh, practitioner. And it was the first time I felt like someone kind of understood what I was talking about and, and, and was listening to me. And, um, and, and it got me really curious. And, and then I started following their recommendations and I started feeling better. And then, you know, I wanted to learn more about it. So I started asking questions and then I started going to conferences and trainings and, um, and then eventually I, um, kind of talked my way into a job as the, um, of leading the functional medicine part of the practice at, um, a woman's health doctor. Um, and then that, I really grew in that job with my functional medicine training and just, um, and I was just, I was reading like a book a week. I mean, I was so hungry for that information and it just made sense. It was the first time something made sense when in as, you know, since I got out of college with that dietetic degree, and, you know, I just remember as a nutrition uh, or as a dietitian prior to that, I was always looking for the next job, like, oh, maybe I should be a nurse or maybe I should go back to school and be a PA or, and that was the first time I was like, no, this is, I was meant to be a dietitian. This, this is why I'm doing this. Um, so that's kind of how I got into functional medicine. All right. So then with that in mind, let's, let's start with diabetes as a good kind of anchor point. So what then uh did you see as far as the let's say the global diabetes epidemic that we're seeing at the moment traditional chronic disease management versus you know the the things that you learn now in the functional medicine lens oh yeah i mean traditional is oh you're overweight you're eating too many carbohydrates or you have a family or a genetic predisposition to developing diabetes and you know there are different types of diabetes but, but without going into that um let's just we'll assume we're talking about type 2 diabetes um and you know and what we're not taking into consideration in the western medicine model is all the other lifestyle factors other than um exercise and eating too many carbohydrates there's there's a lot beyond that that's going to contribute to elevated blood sugars and insulin resistance um things like sleep. So, um, I don't know if you want me to jump into this now, but, um, <laughs> yeah, jump away. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so sleep is definitely going to contribute to an elevation of, of your blood sugars as well as insulin resistance. So when you're not getting enough sleep, that's a stress on your body. And so that's going to, um, increase your stress hormones like cortisol and cortisol when that becomes elevated in the short term it's not a it's not a big deal in fact it's a good thing cortisol helps bring down inflammation and it's life-saving um but in the long term when someone's chronically sleep deprived or they have really poor sleep hygiene and they're just not getting good quality sleep or maybe they have sleep apnea or another sleep disorder then now they've got chronically elevated cortisol and so one of the things cortisol does is it stimulates your liver to release glucose or your blood sugar 
Um, and typically, if you are not insulin resistant, if your insulin's working well, insulin kind of works like a key, like a, opening up a door in the cell, and that lets glucose into your cells. But when cortisol is chronically elevated, it, it contributes to causing insulin resistance. And so now you've got a lot of blood sugar, and then that sugar can't get into the cells, so the blood sugar stays elevated. Um, so that's, that's kind of one way. Cortisol also, you know, as far as um, contributing to diabetes, is you're going to have a lot more um, uh, central fat deposition. So you're going to have a lot more weight gain in your belly, you know, what we'll call belly fat, um, when you have a lot of uh, chronic elevation of cortisol. Um, and then that cortisol also stops working as well because you actually can form cortisol resistance. So now the cells um, become resistant to, to cortisol. And so your body will pump out more cortisol, just like it pumps out more insulin when you become insulin resistant to try to um, get sugar into the cells or, or um, do whatever the job that needs to be done is. So, so those are just two ways that sleep deprivation or poor quality sleep are going to contribute to diabetes. Right now, just just attack on the what you said because I think it's important, especially when we think about some of the the older firefighters and then also the kind of stereotypical um, caricature that the police department often is labeled with. But but like you said, the the obesity gain, the weight gain. Um, so kind of let's expand on that. What other elements of sleep deprivation are causing that? Because there's there's one philosophy in the fire service, for example, where it's almost kind of fat shaming like you know you know you're, you're not up to be able to do the job so you should just leave and then there's the other side to me where i agree if that person's not willing to put in the work but what has to be acknowledged as well are all the factors that are setting these men and women up for failure because of things like sleep deprivation so what other elements um, are contributing to weight gain specifically when it comes to sleep deprivation oh yeah that's a great question too um so, I mean, I mentioned insulin resistant, increase in blood sugar, and then you also have that in increase in inflammation because you become cortisol resistant. So now you, you stay inflamed because the cortisol can't do its job. But you're also going to see an increase in something called ghrelin. And ghrelin is a hormone that um, makes you hungry, tells you, tells you you need to eat. And so when you're sleep deprived, you have a an elevation in ghrelin and so you're going to be more hungry i don't know if you've ever noticed that like if you don't sleep well for a couple nights or uh, you have a lot of calls and then maybe you're more hungry the next day or um or the following couple days depending if you're not able to get some more sleep um you also have a decrease in a hormone called leptin and leptin is a hormone that makes you feel full and so <laughs> the bottom line there, again, the re end result is you feel more hungry and it's harder to feel satiated and full. You also, you have changes in your brain where you're going to crave more junk food. So you're going to crave more of like the salty, sugary foods. Um, and so you're, you're probably going to eat more of those too because you're not getting you're not getting full and you're hungrier. And then you have a decrease in your metabolic rate. And so you're caloric burn how many calories are burnt your body's burning throughout the day just um sitting there doing nothing is lower and so you're eating more you're eating more calorically dense uh, nutrient deficient foods and then you're not burning as many calories so it's really setting you up for for weight gain yeah i had um 
Kurt Parsley on the show, who's a Navy SEAL turned function medicine doctor. And, and he was saying the same kind of thing, basically, that the, the joke about coffee and donuts for police officers is true. And there's sleep deprivation is behind it. The caffeine is a stimulant and the donuts are exactly like you were saying, the, the ghrelin. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And then if you're drinking coffee all day, then it's going to make it harder to sleep. I mean, one of the things when you're sleep deprived is you build up something called adenosine, um, which builds up builds up in your brain as you um, break down ATP, which is basically your body's energy currency. And one of the things that caffeine does is it blocks the receptor for adenosine. And so you're not going to, that's why you don't get as sleepy when you drink caffeine. So if you're drinking caffeine because you're sleep deprived and you're drinking that all day, then it's going to be harder to sleep. And then, you know, it becomes a vicious cycle. Absolutely. All right. Well, then speaking of consuming, let's talk about gut health, because that's, I think, an area that people get kind of confused as well. But my understanding, the gut is 80% of the immune system. So that, to me, supports the idea, that I think, that a lot of cancers are probably preventable, that, that they are, you know, self-induced. Um, and then, you know, again, the, the, the healthy bacteria, to me, promotes homeostasis. So if it's out of whack through caffeine, through alcohol, through, you know, terrible food, that then it's going to exhibit itself globally over the body so what is uh you know educate us about the the foundations of gut health how we can improve it and, and then you know the the issues if it's not healthy yeah no that's another great question um and and gi cancers are one of the higher cancers in the fire service as well um and yeah you're right it, it is 80 percent of the immune system and you know just to jump off of and and kind of um, close up the whole sleep discussion on this one is um, when we're not getting enough sleep, that's going to alter the balance of the bacteria that lives in our gut. So we have all sorts of bacteria and all sorts of microbes that live in our gut, yeasts and um, bacterias and parasites and all sorts of stuff, but um, we need a, a balance. And so we have bacteria in our gut that's beneficial, that helps us digest our foods, that makes vitamins, that detoxifies, that um, trains and strengthens our immune system. Um, so really important jobs. Balances our hormones, our neurotransmitters. Um, so the gut is kind of where it's at. And, you know, in functional medicine, it sounds like you've had these discussions before. That's really where we start is looking at gut health. Um, and as far as cancer goes is, you know, I'm not up on all the cancer um, literature as far as how it relates to the gut, but your um, gut microbiota is, is, like I said, it's really training and, um, and, and balancing your immune system. And so, and inflammation and your blood sugars. And so inflammation, elevated blood sugars, toxins, all these stuff, all these things are going to increase your risk for developing cancers. And so if your gut microbiota is off, it's certainly going to influence that in a negative way. So with that being said, um, what are the effects of processed food on the gut bacteria versus what, you know, what we think of as a, a whole food? Uh <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, okay, so processed foods are going to be full of things like your trans fats, um, which are man-made fats. Um, and basically they take uh, a unsaturated fat, a liquid fat, and they make it into a solid. 
And they do that to increase shelf life, to change the way it feels in your mouth. Um, and, um, and one of the things that trans fats does as far as gut health is it is, um, pretty toxic to the beneficial bacteria. And so it's going to kill some of your beneficial bacteria, uh, which is going to allow more space for more of that pathogenic bacteria to overgrow. The other thing that packaged foods and processed foods are full of is sugar and, and sugar is, is food for more of your potentially pathogenic bacterias as well as yeast. And, um, and so that's going to be just, you know, like fertilizer for those things to, to grow and proliferate in your gut. And that's going to, again, that's going to block out space for some of that more beneficial bacteria to grow. Um, if it doesn't have one, if it doesn't have food um, from some of our whole foods, and also, uh, if it's being if if it's being pushed out by some of this more pathogenic bac bacteria and yeast. Well, speaking of that, I want to ask about how we bolster that in a moment. Um, but a discussion I had with someone the other day is: I wonder now with this just uh, what's the right word? Just laser-like focus on sterilizing everything on planet Earth at the moment. Um, what the effect that's going to have on on the human immune system and maybe even the gut bacteria with there being nothing to challenge the immune system at the moment that we would normally be touching and sticking in our mouth and, and bolstering it. Yeah, no, absolutely. There was a book that came out, I think it was by Dr. Axe, that came out, I think it was called Eat Dirt. And it was all about, you know, just eating more dirt on your vegetables. So growing your own vegetables and not washing them. And, and there are microbes in that soil these uh, soil-based microbes that are very resistant to things like antibiotics and um, uh, some of the other things that kill off our beneficial bacteria, but they're also great for making an, um, uh, a healthy, um, beneficial environment for this your beneficial bacteria to be able to grow and thrive in. Uh, and there's supplements out there, um, which maybe you've heard of some of them, that there it's just basically the same thing it's for based probiotics yeah yeah and actually just to give a thorn a plug i take theirs and i've i've taken a, a host of, of of probiotics so i can actually say yes these are good but i was amazed how well their ones worked with if, if people have a kind of imbalance that is pretty obvious then then even if you just do one 30-day cycle I, I was very impressed yeah, I've taken theirs as well. And the, the neat thing about soil-based is you're not trying – because you can't really repopulate the gut. You have to create an environment for that beneficial bacteria to grow. And and, and the soil-based probiotics are one of the things that helps to do that. Yeah. Now, what about kombucha? I, I drink that a lot too. What's your stance on that? On kombucha, I think it's great. I mean um, – the only the only time I've seen people have problems with kombucha sometimes is if they have severe yeast overgrowth and they're and they're really they've become really sensitive to yeast and then uh, they will become they're sensitive to uh, kombucha and they'll be symptomatic. Right. Okay. Well, I want to I want to kind of reframe the lens a little bit and we can tie in the uh, the COVID program that you've set up for first responders as well, but. One of my frustrations I have now as we are, you know, what, five months into this this pandemic is that we are being sold that we have to do all these things because it's about human life. And if you don't wear a mask, then, you know, you want to murder everyone. But I'm not seeing any discussion, like I mentioned with the schools, on improving 
the nation's health, especially not not in the U.S. at least. There's no discussion on changing factory farming on the way, like you said, with, with pesticides, the way we way we literally you know grow our food, the 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 school food, the the mental health, all these things. So, um, firstly, what is your um, interpretation on this issue? Do you do you think it's just a disease or should there be a discussion on the resilience of the human being's response to this disease? Well, absolutely. I think there should be a discussion about it. And I think that's part of the reason that the U.S. has been so hard hit. We're not a very healthy nation. <laughs> so there's a lot of insulin resistance, overweight, obesity, chronic inflammation. Um, and, and we're eating... You know, the vast majority of Americans aren't really eating food. They're eating the kind of this Franken food, this stuff that your body doesn't even know, know what to do with. And it's definitely changing the balance of our gut microbiota and therefore our, our immune systems. So, you know, really early on, I've, I've been talking about this. You know, we need to build our resilience. Yes, it's important to wash your hands and, and socially distance and wear a mask. But, but you, it, eventually you know, a lot of us are going to be exposed. And so my thought is, you know, if we're going to be exposed, um, we, if our body is resilient, hopefully we're not going to have as strong uh, a case or as severe a case. So for example, you know, part of the, re one of the reasons a lot of, you know, people are dying is this inflammation that just runs out of control. And if we are already chronically inflamed and your inflammation is already at a high level, then you're at a higher risk for developing a more severe case of COVID. And so, so one of the preventative or resiliency building things you can do is to try to reduce and modulate and control that inflammation. Um, and, and, and inflammation is not a bad thing, but chronic inflammation is a, a detrimental thing to your body. Yeah, I saw, um, I mean, this is tragic, what I'm about to say, absolutely tragic, but, uh, someone posted that, um, you know, a family friend had passed away and it was horrendous, but there was a, a picture and this poor gentleman was, you know, hugely overweight, morbidly obese. And that's what's really pissing me off, for lack of a better word, about this whole thing is to me, if we don't address the nation's health, then we've learned nothing and all those people died in vain. But if we actually use this as a springboard to really change the the way that this country moves and eats, I think we have an amazing opportunity to to save millions of lives. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I don't think anything happens um, without a reason. And so, like you said, maybe this is a lesson and an opportunity for us to make some changes to improve the health of the nation. Yeah, I hope so. Well, it's starting at the very beginning then. So we mentioned the farms. So what what should the food look like that's on the table of a firehouse or an American family as far as the food quality? Right. So, I mean, more of what I refer to as a whole foods diet and, and really what that comes down to really simply is eating real food. So um, that means food that if that you buy and you come home from the grocery store, you put it on your counter. And if you forget about it for a couple of days, it's going to rot. Not the food that you can leave out there for months and nothing's going to happen to it. Um, so, you know, these are things like um, fruits and vegetables, meats, uh, dairy, whole grains, um, 
legumes, you know, beans, things like that. And there's some variations. I mean, I'm just throwing out a really generalized whole foods diet. Um, you know, we can talk about paleo and keto and all these other variations. Um, but, you know, just in general. So these are foods that you have to cook them. Um, there's some sort of preparation for the most part, um, whether it's cutting up vegetables and fruit or, or cooking a food. Um, and, and, you know, if you're going and, and shopping in a grocery store, these are the foods that you're going to find around the perimeter of the grocery store. It's the aisles of the grocery store where we tend to get into a lot of trouble. Um, those are the food where the foods that are going to harm you typically live. I mean, you can find some healthy foods down the aisles like canned fish and, and things like that. Um, but in general, you want to be shopping out on the perimeters of the grocery store. Right. And then as far as um, the actual cleanliness of the food, the quality of the food, the, I think there's, there's a myth out there that, you know, healthy food is, is more expensive than than processed food. So what in, in all the, the coaching you've done so far, how can people find cleaner food that's not going to break the bank? Yeah. So, um, okay, for example, um, when you're talking about buying organic food, uh, we, we refer, we talked about pesticides briefly, um, a few minutes ago, but if you're looking to f find foods that are going to have less potential, con um, toxins on them, like pesticides, looking at, um, the, oh, what is it? Um, the clean 15 and the dirty dozen on uh, environmental working group. They have a little app that you can use. You can go on their website and every year they go and they, they list, the um the dirty dozen the 12 foods that have the highest amount of pesticides on them and then the clean 15 the 15 fruits and vegetables sorry i'm referring to produce that have the least amount of pesticides on them um and so what i tell people is if you're concerned about pesticides then buy organic um the, the dirty dozen uh produce so whatever produce is on that dirty dozen list try to get that organic the ones that are on the clean 15, you probably don't need to spend extra money because organic um, can typically cost a little bit more. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is um, Costco has um, is one of the biggest producers of organic food. Now, I don't haven't looked deeply into their growing practices, um, but that's one way is buying in bulk. And when we're talking about produce. Now you're getting more produce and there's the chance of it going bad. But um, my response to that would be, well, maybe add more vegetables to your plate. So adding more color um, or you can go in with a neighbor and, and divvy it up um, or a family member. Um, if you have family that lives nearby. The other thing is a lot of people are growing um, their own gardens now, and I know that takes a little bit more time, but people are growing what are called victory gardens, especially if they don't have a lot of space. They're growing in windowsills, and they're uh, growing in planters, and um, and you can grow things like leafy green vegetables, which are um, really easy to grow and uh, don't take up a lot of space. So you can grow fruits and vegetables that don't take up a lot of space, that don't take up a lot of time. Um, so those are a couple ways. And, um, and, you know, fruits and vegetables by and large are, um, not a whole lot more expensive than your, uh, chips and ice creams and, and a lot of your processed foods. So, um, so, 
swapping out for those. And then also things like um, grains and beans and lentils, those are pretty cheap. And so uh, those are a lot cheaper than all, I would say all of your processed foods. So getting things like those. Um, and then for your, your meats, that you can, there are a lot of different ways to try to get the price down. Um, one is buying in bulk and freezing if you have the freezer capacity. Um, talking to local farmers and seeing if you can get a co-op. You can also do that with your fruits and vegetables if you have local farmers near you. So there are creative ways to try to get around it, um, to try to get more whole foods and, and get away from junk foods. The, the hard areas are, you know, the places I call food deserts that your local grocery store is a convenience store on the corner. And those, those areas are a little bit more difficult. There are, um, you know, now in this day of age, there are a lot of places that you can order from online, but you know, the price is going to vary on those. Um, and, um, there are programs out there that help with, um, families that are lower income that's that want to eat cleaner foods uh healthier foods so i know thrive market will donate to families and um there are some other um mail-in grocers that that will help with um getting good foods if you're at a lower income yeah and i think what you said with the food desert is an important thing as well when you hear discussions on for example local farming then yeah. you get people like, well, how are we supposed to feed LA? It's like, well, yeah. let's focus on the other 95% of the country. Yeah. And then, you know, hopefully they collectively can help also grow for the inner cities. But we seem to discount this argument because of the whole, we can't feed everyone. There's so many people. And I think, I think that's completely wrong. I think that we got away from those community farms and that is how you feed a community and if you have local farms and then get some sort of subsidies from the government rather than these mega farms a you're not shipping it all over the place you don't have to irradiate it or cover it in chemicals but then you know the um the event the, the affordability will actually shift to the healthy food being more affordable than the, than the crappy food i agree i agree yeah and there's actually i was just reading an article about a woman artist down in la area and and she's doing just that she's um working with local farmers to create basically kind of like a, a farmer's market for lower income families. So it's happening. There are movements. It's, it's not as fast as I'd like to see it, but it, it, it is happening. The word's getting out. Um, and I think just continuing to talk about it like you are um, is, is going to bring more awareness to it and, and bring more movement. Yeah. Well, the other side of that equation obviously is then when you get the food home, so is cooking. And I think that's something that probably from my generation forward, we've really kind of dropped the ball. Like our parents and grandparents, you know, that was something that was passed down from generation to generation. So I can't imagine it was, uh, it was found very often that anyone couldn't cook, but we've definitely become disconnected with our food. So tell me about, um, you know, your philosophy on, on cooking and how that will also enable us to have a healthier diet. I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm kind of laughing because I'm a dietitian that doesn't really like to cook, but I eat <laughs> everything from scratch. So, um, so I've created a lot of ways to kind of shortcut stuff. Um, and, and that's what I would recommend is, is one, just start by learning a couple dishes that are, um, you can make and that are edible. <laughs> so, 
So that's the one. Um, and just start by making a couple dishes and kind of start to just like anything else. You know, if you're going to go to a, a gym and, and learn a new exercise, you're not going to start with the heaviest weight. You're going to start with a lower weight, learn the movement and then build up your strength. And same thing with cooking, you know, start with one or two dishes that maybe have like five ingredients or, or maybe just start by making a salad, but, but start somewhere. Um, and, and then, you know, maybe make that, and that's like your, you're cooking for, for that week or two and then add in another dish and then it just kind of grows. And then my second suggestion would be, um, find shortcuts. Um, so one of the reasons I don't like cooking is I'd rather be doing about a million other things. I'd rather be out surfing or mountain biking or take my dog for a walk or, or learning new things or, and I don't want to be sitting in the kitchen over a pan stirring. And so, I've found things that I can leave. I can I can walk away. So, for example, this morning um, I cut up a bunch of veggies and I put them in a um, casserole dish with a and put a top on it. Um, and I cut up um, kabocha squash and broccoli and cauliflower and some red beet. And I just stuck it all in there and put it in the oven at 350. Um, and then I cut up some squash um, and kind of sliced it thinly and I, I call that my squash bacon and I put some olive I mean um, some avocado on that oil on that and I put that in the oven um, and then I went out and I did a workout in my driveway while that cooked and then about halfway in I threw some um, fish in the oven and then I went back out and finished my workout and I came back in and my food was cooked for the day and then I'll just eat that in the morning and then I'll have some leftovers for the day and so that's kind of how I try to avoid cooking. So my suggestion would be, it doesn't have to be something like that, but maybe you get an instant pot or you start doing more crock pot meals or, you know, find things that are easy to make that don't require a lot of time and you're going to be more apt to do it versus if you say, okay, I'm going to start cooking and you start finding recipes that have like 20 ingredients and about 30 different steps for the instructions and some of the words you don't even know what they mean and you have to be in the kitchen for two hours and then it comes out burnt. So, um, you know, find things that you're going to somewhat enjoy making or that are easy enough. So I've kind of got it down where in the morning it's almost meditative for me to cut up vegetables. Um, and then my third recommend or suggestion would be to plan ahead. So when we are hungry, and especially if you're getting home from work or um, you're um, and you're hungry, the last thing you want to do is like cut up a bunch of stuff to make a salad and then cook stuff. So the more stuff you can have kind of pre-cut up um, and, and ready to go, the better that you can just throw in. So for example, maybe you make, you get some, you know, burger meat and you bring that home and you make it into patties and you freeze a bunch of those um, in individual patties with maybe some butcher paper between so they don't stick together. And then maybe you went to the, the Costco or the farmer's market um, and you get a bunch of veggies and you cut all the, you know, cut up a bunch of veggies and put them either at, I have big Pyrex dishes, um, but maybe you put them in Ziploc bags or whatever and just use those, reuse those Ziploc bags each week. Um, and so you have stuff all ready to go. So if you're home and you're starving and um, 
you've got a bunch of veggies cut up, maybe throw together a quick salad while you throw those frozen burgers or those burgers into the oven um, with maybe some root vegetables that you have cut up and you just stick it in there and you sit down and eat your salad. And then at least you're not so hungry, you're going to chew your fist off. So that kind of thing, you know, just preparing ahead. And, and those are kind of, I would say those are my three biggest suggestions. Brilliant. Well, I mean, you, you've added, uh, you know, you kind of highlighted a point as well that I've had in a couple other discussions, which is, you know, the food prepping, food prepping thing was big for, for a while in the CrossFit space. And it's kind of funny because really that's, that's leftovers. So that's something that I found in, in, in our household here is we'll normally cook for double the amount of family, family members that we have. So there's nothing more convenient than reheating something that you made yesterday or the day before. Um, you know, so that's, that's to me is another time saver is just make more so you can eat it twice. That, that's brilliant. Yeah. And you know, so, and a lot of times it even tastes better the second round. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. What well, you, you, when you were describing your meal the other day, you, you, um, triggered something as well that I want to ask you about. So one of my guests, Julian Pinot, who's actually, uh, you know, like a strength and movement coach initially, he started discovering, um, that he would eat all his carbs and you know these are mixed in obviously with vegetables his carbs during the beginning of the day because it would stimulate his um uh, sympathetic nervous system and in the evening is when he had his um proteins and he wouldn't have any you know carbs and he just have vegetables with that so that down regulated his nervous system and then helped him sleep better as well what is what is your uh, philosophy on mixing carbohydrates and proteins or should they be separated yeah so i've looked into the food combining thing a lot and um i, I haven't found a ton of research on it and i'd love if, if you have any or, or or if your your friend does to see it um it, it, it you know the thing about nutrition um is it's so individualized um from you know what your health status is what your um, what your movements like or your, your fitness is like, you know, what kind of fitness you're trying to do, what your training looks like, how much sleep you're getting, what your insulin sensitivity is like, if you're a male or a female, and if you're a female, what part of your cycle are, are you in? All that stuff is going to influence your macronutrient makeups, your carbs, proteins, fats, and also what time of day you're eating them. Um, as far as combining them, I just, um, for the most part, unless someone has like a lot of digestive issues and, and maybe we try that. And I don't know if it's something physiologically that's happening. Cause I, I, I don't think it makes a difference with the enzymes and all, all that, that I've heard people say. Um, but and maybe it's psychological, but maybe they feel a little bit better. We might try that for a little bit, but I don't use that a whole lot. My, what I do do is I will adjust and we'll kind of play with the ratios of carbs, proteins, and fats that they're eating. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, he was describing that that one inhibited the absorption of the other as well. But again, like you said, I've, I've tried it. I actually like it. I've been doing it myself. And again, it just it feels when you have when you have meat and carbs together. To me, that is when you get that gut bomb. And for me personally, when I've separated them, I can still consume the same amount of meat, but I don't get that feeling anymore. So, um, you know, again, it's just just something for for people to to kind of play with, but. Um, so I want to transition to kind of the first responder community. Obviously, it's something that you guys are working with now with First In Wellness. But before we get to, to what you guys do, tell me about the Berkeley and the Santa Clara studies. 
Yeah. So, um, when I was working at, uh, California center for functional medicine, we, um, were approached by, by Berkeley fire department to work with a recruit class. And we did a four month study with them. And we, um, did three different modules. We, um, taught them, gave some, them some information on nutrition. Um, then we did a module on sleep and then we did a, mo- a module on stress management. Um, and we did the first year, um, we did a lot more data collections. So we did um, labs and all of them. We did a baseline set of labs as well as a post-study set of labs. Um, you know what? The post-study set of labs, I don't think we actually did. We did a, a baseline. I don't think we ever got to that. But we also had them wear um, uh, um, um, glucometers. Or not glucometers. We had them wear... Um, Oh, why am I blanking on the, on the name? Um, uh, continuous glucose monitors um, throughout the first couple weeks um, while, while we did the nutrition changes. And, um, and so we took a look at how their blood sugars changed depending on um, what they were eating. So we had them follow, it was basically a paleo diet. Um, and then, and we had them follow that for, I believe that this is a few years ago now. So I'm trying to remember back. I haven't talked about this in a while. So I apologize for being a little fuzzy. Um, and we had them follow that for four weeks. And then, um, so we had them wear a glu- glu- um, continuous glucose monitor, a CGM in the beginning. And then again at the end, so two, two times. And then we compared what their blood sugars look like. And, um, and then we, and I'm trying to remember. Oh, and then we also did um, hydrostatic weighing. So we looked at body composition changes. So those are the things we, we saw we, that we measured. And we did see an improvement in body composition. So um, an increase in lean mass, decrease in um, body fat. And then we did see some improvements in some of the recruits' blood sugar. Um, in just that month-long diet um, or nutrition challenge that we did. Um, and then Santa Clara was a little bit different. Santa Clara was six months long, so it was a bit longer. We did those same three modules, but we also did a cancer risk reduction module. Um, and we did baseline labs, and we also did um, post-study labs. So at the end of the study, we did some the same labs again and repeat it, repeated it. We also did the CGMs, the continuous glucose monitor, um, the same way at the beginning, at kind of baseline of the nutrition, and then again at the end of their their nutrition, um, that uh, four week nutrition challenge that they did. Um, and then we also did hydrostatic weighing, so kind of the same model, but um, but we also did the the post program labs, um, and we did see some body composition changes. Um, blood sugars, we didn't really see any improvements, um, and one of the reasons may have been between the two groups, there were some you know the recruit class coming in, they were um, some of them were a little bit overweight. Um, not terribly, but a little bit. And so they're also doing a lot of fitness in their fire academy. And so they, they had a lot of, it was, everything was new. Whereas the, um, 19 volunteers that we had for the Santa Clara department were probably some of the healthiest, 
um, members of that, that department. And so they were already coming in pretty healthy. And so we didn't see as, um, as much of a difference as far as uh, metabolic changes. Um, just, just to interject for a second. So as a, as a fireman observing the, the, Berkeley firefighters were recruits, so they were probably on a nine-to-five, go-to-bed-and-sleep schedule. And then the other guys, even though they were veterans or in good shape, were exposed to the sleep deprivation of firefighter cycles. You got it, and that's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so those were – I don't know if you want to know more about those studies. Um, yeah, just – I mean, any, any other data that you, you glean from it before we move on? Um. I think, you know, the biggest thing I gleaned from it was um, I, I did the, a lot of the, um, the development of, of the programs, and, and the, one of the programs I developed was the cancer risk reduction one, and that was kind of my first insight into some of the data, and it was pretty eye-opening for me, and, and that really is when I became um, very interested. I, I enjoyed working with with. Uh, firefighters and that, you know, I enjoyed that part of my job. But when I started looking at that data, um, I started becoming um, uh, more motivated and, 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 and feeling like it was something I had to do was, was work with firefighters and, and to help to change this, these statistics. And so, um, so through this, these programs, but especially working with Santa Clara, um, hearing some of their stories, but in that research um, with uh, the cancer risk reduction module, that's where I said, okay, this is something that I have to do. So I quit my job <laughs> and, uh, and decided to start first in wellness. Amazing. So, so that's a great segue. So we were connected with Mike Salemi, who was on uh, episode 254. Um, so tell me about the, the genesis of First in Wellness. Oh, yeah. So um, I met Mike in the Santa Clara study, and I was so impressed with him and just so enjoyed working with him that when I started thinking about leaving First in Wellness, um, I... Uh, start thinking about, well, I wonder if this is an endeavor Mike would want to do with me. And so I um, called him up and, and said, hey, um, I'm, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to start uh, a, a first responder wellness program and I'm going to start with firefighters because I know that population. You Are you interested? And he... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can I say, um, well, I'm just going to say it anyway. And of course, Mike's response, his enthusiastic response was, hell yes. And so um, so he and I sat down and I quit my job and I and we started First in Wellness. And um, I think it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, and I'm very excited. And, and working with, with Mike has been just such an amazing experience because he's um, – enthusiastic he's thoughtful he's uh knows his stuff um i have some background in in fitness as far as i was a personal trainer and i studied exercise physiology when i was in grad school but 
I probably know enough to be dangerous. And Mike is, you know, the real deal. And so he was the only one that I, I wanted to work with on this program. Yeah, what I loved about Mike as well is that he's hugely out of the box when it comes to his thinking as well. And when we did the interview, um, it's probably when you guys first started doing this, I think maybe I've got the timeline wrong, but he just come out of a Cambo retreat where where he done the you know the, the poison from the toad but that's that's what you need you need people who are, are going to put down standard textbooks that have said this is the way we've always done it and you know that, that are you know experts in kettlebell training or you know like you said different types of eating whatever it is so that you have this toolbox so toolbox excuse me so you know firefighter a walks through the door and you're like okay well you're probably going to need this and this but firefighter b walks through and like, well you're completely different so you need this we can't as you mentioned earlier we can't treat everyone like they're made in in a factory because we're all different exactly exactly and you know that's that's one of the things that um is a, is quite a bit different about this program is um, one of the components is we have coaching um and uh we have uh, it's at our 90 day program. It's three modules, nutrition, building, psychological resilience, and then sleep. Um, and in each module, there are two group coaching sessions. And so one of the things we concentrate a lot on is behavior change, because that really is necessary to build physical and psychological resilience. I mean, unless you have a plan, and unless you um, have help following through on that plan, and, and kind of know where you're going, um, then it's going to be really hard to train for both physical and psychological resilience. And so um, that was a part of the program that I was unwavering on. I'm like, we have to have coaching. It's critical. Absolutely. Well, you you um, touched on something earlier. I just want to make sure we go, we go back to that. You said about testing for the candidates being vulnerable to cancer. What was it that you found with that? We didn't do a lot of testing. We did a couple of um, lab tests that, you know, they're not direct um, for cancer, but we did things like we looked at uh, insulin sensitivity, blood glucose levels. Um, we looked at a couple inflammatory markers, just like SED rate and CRP. Um, we didn't do any like cytokines or anything. Um, and so we kind of indirectly, looking at risk um but but we didn't do any specific direct cancer studies i mean as far as like imaging or anything like that and blood work that might be more specific okay but with the risk factors were they higher in in the group compared to a civilian population i think yeah oh absolutely um i mean as far as risk factors just sleep deprivation alone is a risk factor um, and, you know, chronic elevation of stress hormones is a risk factor and yeah, your, um, exposure to carcinogens is a risk factor. Um, you know, these are all risk factors being, you know, overweight, obese, those are risk factors. Those, you know, not in that study population, no, but everyone was of a healthy weight, but, but that is a risk factor. So, um, so yeah, there were. It's definitely higher than the general population. Yeah, well, I'm glad you even listed it that way because again, it, it fed into you know, the, the thing that I'm so passionate about. But that's an area in the fire service where we seem to be very um, myopic when it comes to cancer. It's like, oh well, it's the the fires, it's the gases, it's the carcinogens, 
And again, kind of like COVID in a way, you know, we're looking at the virus and we're forgetting about the resilience of the human being. And to me, having worked in my last fire department that basically never saw fire and lost handfuls of people, it's only a four station department, person after person after person to cancer. So if it was carcinogens alone, they should have been the healthiest fire department on the planet. But they, they were far from that. So that's a, an area that I'm glad, you know, thank you for, for kind of explaining that because again, to, to understand why we need to change the work week in the fire service is we're not going to fix the cancer issue until we fix the sleep issue, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my answer to all it, that is always, you know, oh, well, it's because of carcinogens and smoke. Yeah, there are probably more, there are definitely more carcinogens and smoke, you know, the plastics and chemicals on the modern furniture. And, but my answer is always yes, but um, there, there's some other stuff that might be contributing and, um, and we need to look at that. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing to me is like the human body is your shield. So if it's, right. if it's, uh, if it's strong and you're exposed to the carcinogens, hopefully there's a good chance. I mean, we're getting better at not exposing ourselves or at least minimizing it, but then hopefully your body will just process it and get rid of it. But if you're already, like you said, in, a, in a, an inflamed state and in a vulnerable state when it comes to your immune system, then it might just take that one last trigger to set it off to, you know, to a cancerous, um, you know, mechanism. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the International Agency for Research on Cancer and World Health Organization has ID'd shift work as a likely carcinogen. So we know, I mean, you guys aren't, you know, we don't technically call it shift work, but if you're at a, a busy station where you're getting woken up all night, then that's pretty close to shift work. It's that um, disrupted sleep. We know that sleep disorders like sleep apnea, um, insomnia, those all... Um, strongly increase your risk for cancer, as well as um, the severity and, the, uh, and how aggressive and deadly the cancer is. And, you know, sleep disorders in the fire service, I don't, you've talked to a lot of people, you're a firefighter, they're not uncommon. I mean, if you look at the data, they're not uncommon. No, you walk into a regular firehouse these days, and it looks like the set of Star Wars, all the CPAPs lying around everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Are people wearing them? Uh, yeah, I mean, people are good with them, but that's the problem is that it's, a, to me, it's a great tool until you get your body back to where it needs to be, where you don't need it anymore. But again, like hypertensive meds, it's being prescribed as, all right, well, you're going to be on this the rest of your life, which again, I, I disagree with completely the same as the testosterone, you know, exogenous testosterone that's being prescribed to everyone when most of these firefighters and, and probably other shift workers too, the testosterone is in the toilet because they don't sleep. So therefore, if you're able to either go to days for a while or if you're older, even, you know, take your retirement, whatever it is, and get your sleep, you won't need to be taking testosterone and be basically rely on it the rest of your life. That's absolutely true. Yeah, there's a huge decline in testosterone with sleep deprivation. Yeah. All right. Well, then um, you, when you first reached out, you talked about a COVID-specific uh, two-week program. So tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, when COVID um, emerged, we, Mike and I sat down, we're like, okay, we need to do something about this. And so we developed a free two-week program um, to build resiliency for COVID. And so it's a lot of the stuff we've talked about. So um, it's kind of a, it's a slim down version, a very slim down version of our 90-day program. We talk about nutrition and specifically nutrition to boost immunity 
as well as reduce and modulate inflammation. And so that's kind of the focus on the nutrition section. And so we talk about things like reducing sugar and, um, and, and eating, um, and, and eliminating inflammatory fats and, and, um, staying hydrated and things like that. So, so all the nutrition section is specifically, um, targeted towards building your immunity and reducing inflammation. Um, the, another component to the program is, is on sleep. And again, it's all focused and targeted on building up your immune, your immune system and reducing inflammation. Um, and so we talk about some different sleep hygiene, um, some different sleep hacks, and, um, and how to do those. And then the third component is, is fitness. And Mike put together a little two-week fitness program. It has um, kind of a um, what did he call it? Uh, hmm. um, he's, it has a, a workout in it that is, oh God, what is, what did he, I can't remember what he called it, but anyway, it's like a 10 minute workout. It's a very quick, short, um, workout. And then he has a longer workout in there. So more of kind of like a hit type workout. Um, so he has an AMRAP and then more of kind of a hit wrap, hit, hit type workout. Um, so we put that together and then we also have a little bit on goal setting. So just some, um, some guidance on how to set a goal and how to follow through on a goal and how to measure your goal and how to, um, maintain your, um, uh, your motivation to, to follow through with that goal. And so, the program is is designed to be short. There's a one week little warm up because we all need a little warm up when we're doing something, especially something new, uh, to get you ready for your the little two week challenge. And then within that two week challenge, there's a, a two week nutrition challenge where you pick your own goal. And again, we walk you through how to pick a goal. And then halfway through, you layer on a sleep a one week sleep challenge, and again we um, give you some ideas for some goals. But then you you pick what one um, you'd like to do, and then you have a two, and then you follow Mike's um, fitness program for two weeks. During that one week warm up, there are some um, videos on how to do the specific exercises and um, and kind of getting you ready for that fitness portion as well. Brilliant. Well, you hit on a point as well that I actually talked about when, when this COVID thing first hit, which is spending, you know, now four years talking about, um, first responder health amongst other things. What worried me at the beginning of COVID was I know the men and women out there protecting their communities are some of the most vulnerable. Even though when they first signed up for the job, they were probably some of the most physically and mentally resilient humans in the nation. Now, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, they they do not have the great immunity. They don't have a great resilience because of the way that we we do business, the shifts. Um, and so then you get this kind of fear mongering that we're seeing as well, which I see in a lot of the general population. They're scared. They don't go outside. They don't move around. They don't eat the right food. So understanding, A, that we're a vulnerable population, and, and that's another reason why I think we should look at the work week because the last people that you want to be dropping like flies are the firefighters and police officers and doctors and nurses of the world. Um, but then, you know, understanding, like you said, there are certain things that we can do to boost immunity. We can't stop this microorganism 
from, you know, flying through the air, but we can, you know, strengthen the castle and make us more resilient to it. Well put. Well put. Yeah. I mean, the truth is nobody was designed to do the job that you guys and ladies do. I mean, no one was designed. You, you guys are not gladiators. You're not replaceable. And, and we need to take better care of you. And that's, you know, our whole mission is to help you guys and gals take care of yourselves um, and build that resiliency, both physical and psychological. Yeah. Well, so back to, to first in wellness. Um, tell me, you know, who, who can use you guys? What, what is it aimed at? And then, and then how do they find it? Yeah. So right now we are, um, offering a program for departments and, um, you can go on to, uh, www.firstinwellness.com and, um, you can get more information on there. You can also um, uh, click a little button and fill out a short little survey to get more information from us about the 90-day program. And also from that website, you can directly sign up for the two-week uh, COVID challenge. Um, in, the in the near future, we're also going to have a uh, program for individuals that'll be uh, just like the 90-day program, but the coaching is just going to be a little bit different in it as far as um, how we offer the coaching. And that another thing that we're working on, because we recognize that budget is, um, the budgets for a lot of departments are not flush. And, um, and uh, so we're working on partnering with grant writers to try to increase funding to help make this um, more available for departments. Brilliant. Yeah, because I love the way you're going to add the individual element too, because there are going to be people working for a department where it's just, you know, that particular organization isn't interested in wellness. And I've, you know, like I said, I've worked for both great ones and, and not so great ones. So at least that gives that individual an opportunity to address their own health, even if it's not going to be supported by the people they work for. Yeah. And, you know, our goal is to make it affordable. Um, and so that's one of the things I'm working on is trying to actually um, get some funding so that we can decrease the cost as much as possible to make it affordable. Because this, our, our number one goal is to get this program out to people, um, to firefighters, and help them to improve their, their sleep, their nutrition, their me mental and physical fitness. So that's our bottom line. And so we're going to try to figure out how to get it out to all of you. Brilliant. Well, I just want to kind of revisit one topic, which is the sleep again, just to give the hypothesis. And we were talking about this before we started recording. So my the way I present this is the way we're doing business at the moment, especially with so many departments working 56-hour work weeks, which I did a majority of my career. Um, we're seeing the data, you know, 100%. There's a, there's a direct correlation between that work week and horrendous ill health, you know, injury, mental health issues. Um, so my kind of proposal is the Northeast does the 2472, which is, you know, a 42 hour work week still. So a full work week compared to most, you know, most people in the workforce, but it does give an additional 24 hours to, to really foster recovery between each shift. As you mentioned, most fire departments, we're not sleeping. And even if we are, it's not a good quality sleep. So. What would be your take on the philosophy that if you take money that you quote unquote, you know, is, is more expensive to add that additional personnel, um, 
investing in your people in the front end the savings that you're going to see in five or 10 years with a healthier workforce? Oh, I completely 100% agree. I mean, the data is there. I mean, even just with wellness programs where they focus on sleep and nutrition and um, and improving health and wellness on the front end, that's going to save a ton of money with workers' comp, with disability, with insurance payments, um, injuries, having to hire additional personnel because your personnel has to retire early. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, with that said, you know, I, I always wonder, is it worth, worth looking at specific stations within a department and how busy those stations are and what kind of schedule is going to work best for that station? And if it's worth individualizing it from that point. Yeah, I mean, I've had that too, where where some people have suggested, like you know, you rotate people through, or they've had a busy day, we'll send them to the station for the night. But again, like you said, I think it it becomes complicated. To me, I look at it almost like the security guard. You know, there's some people that sit at a desk in front, you know, at the bottom of an apartment complex that never chase a bad guy. They might, you know, patrol around and and scare off potential, you know, like car car robbers for lack of a better word but they're not out fighting crime every day but the people want them there because they're the insurance policy they're the deterrent and then they're also there if something happens you know and then you get the people who are the SWAT team in the inner city that are you know running their ass off all the time but to me you know usually there's a transition you start off as a young aggressive firefighter peace officer whatever in the really busy area and then usually you see a kind of movement over to the less busy time um, places when people have got a lot more time on so i think that has a place and doesn't need to be reduced either you know i think it's just one of those things where if you want to be busy you go over here and if you want a slower station then you go there but it's still even the slow stations knowing that you're going to get a call at some point you're still not going to get that good quality sleep Exactly, exactly. So yeah, there's that there, you know, it would definitely be beneficial to change um, the schedules, uh, change how that is, um, but also change potentially, you know, the start time. So maybe shift that up an hour or two so people can get an hour or two more uh, rest in their bed, especially if they're commuting. Um, But the other thing about changing the schedules is um, taking overtime working a second job. So all those things I think are educational things and just understanding the the benefits and, and the importance of sleep. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I get a kickback from a lot from, you know, usually from people higher up like, oh, well, they're just going to take more overtime. And my uh, response is, well, if you've, you know, you've manned your st- fire department properly, there's not going to be a lot of time to take. So then even if they do a second job, well, now they're hanging drywall or, you know, cleaning pools, they're going to go to bed at night. So they might be physically tired, but they're not going to be up all night. Whereas if you take a shift at a fire station, that's another 24 hours of getting your ass kicked. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's definitely a hurdle to get over. Yeah. It's it's not as big as everyone makes out. We just need to, you know, <laughs> just look, look to the Northeast and go, let's just do what they're doing. How did you do it? Oh. Teach us. Exactly. And I think, you know, just more and more talk about these other, because cancer is a real concern, right? Cardiovascular disease is a real concern. And and sleep deprivation, sleep disorders, all this has a huge impact on both of those. Mental health issues, those sleep has, is, is just intimately tied to those. Yeah. And so I think the more discussion there is about that, the more, um, uh, 
motivation and and um, and desire that upper management's going to have in wanting to change some of the, the schedules and 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 increase staffing. Absolutely. Well, I re- I mean, I truly really appreciate your feedback because obviously you've got the the functional medicine lens, but you've been working with our community for a while now, so I think it's something that people need to hear. Um, okay. Well, then I want to transition to some closing questions. The the first one I love to ask. Well, actually, before I do this, you've actually been involved in three books. So tell me which books they were. Oh God, now I got to remember those two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can you can send them to me. I'll put them on the site. <laughs> um, one was on thyroid disease. One was on endometriosis. Or two were yeah, two were on endometriosis. Okay, brilliant. So. If people aren't looking at diseases of the human body, are there any books that you, I mean, the ones that you wrote about, are there any other books that someone's written that you love to recommend? It can be something that we've discussed today or something completely different. Oh, I'm going to look at my thing. Um, yeah. I think uh, The Longevity Diet would be an interesting read. Have you read anything about fasting mimicking diet and cancer? Um, I haven't, no, not that book. So that sounds brilliant. Um, that's an interesting read um, for your for your uh, female athletes. Um, Roar, R O A R, and it's all about nutrition and training for female athletes, which I found fascinating because as a female athlete, all these years, I I wish I again. You know, I say this so often. I wish I'd known this years ago, <laughs> but I wish I'd known this years ago. Uh, so I think that's a really good read. Um, and then, uh, oh, why zebras don't get ulcers? You are about the third person that's mentioned that book to me <laughs> in the last two weeks. It's crazy. Oh, really? So I have to buy it now. <laughs> and then um, Martin Seligman's work. Have you heard of Martin Seligman? No, I haven't. Any of his work. So he's done a lot of work with the U.S. military and building uh, psychological resilience. Um, one of his th- biggest thing is building optimism. And, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, that person's optimistic or I'm just a pessimistic person. But optimism can be learned and it um, it builds resilience. It builds psychological resilience. And so it's a it's kind of a muscle that you can work. So his work is very interesting. Um and he has a whole program with the U.S. military that he developed. And they've got, got phenomenal um, uh, improvements in their, their mental health. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm Martin him up. Highly. And I, I think um, when you talk to um, Simon, he'll have some good books for you, too, on the mental health front. Excellent. Brilliant. Yeah. So he, he coaches our psychological resilience module. Fantastic. Yeah. And I've never heard, I mean, I'm looking forward to talking to Simon. I think it's going to be incredible. And just, just to underline that. So first in wellness, you have you, you know, specializing in the, the, the nutrition element. You have Mike specializing in the strength and conditioning. And then you have Simon doing the psychological. So you've got all those experts covering all those bases. Yeah. And we have a, um, there's a company called Eversleep. They make a home sleep monitor and they're reviewing all of our, our sleep module information. Oh, excellent. And we also use Eversleep in our in our program. Um, so we do, you know, home sleep testing. And then we also use Aura Ring. I don't know. You've probably heard of Aura Rings. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we use those in our program as well as some of our um, continuous coaching because it gives daily coaching, but also just to monitor physiological changes as we go through the our, our different um, challenges within the program. 
Fantastic. All right. Well, then that was books. What about a movie? Any movies that you love? Ah, uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> That's a funny film. I love that movie. Icarus? Oh, Icarus. My husband just popped his head in. Icarus, yeah. <laughs> did you see Icarus? I did. It was amazing. I'd love to get that guy, but I'm sure he's probably buried <laughs> somewhere in Russia now. <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. Yeah, that movie, that blew my mind. Yes, no, that was incredible. Actually, I'm getting a, a doctor on um, tomorrow who one of the products he has is the blood restriction device where they basically put like a, a compression band, almost like a blood pressure cuff, and you work out. And I thought it was just to kind of, you know, accentuate the pump. But actually, there's a lot of um, rest and regeneration properties to it where it causes a global immune response, a healing response. But he was involved in the Olympic arena doing testing back in the day. So I'm going to actually get to pick the brains of a, an Icarus-style doctor tomorrow. Oh, how fun. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, so that'd be a good one. Um, all right, then. So the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Now, obviously, I've got Simon coming on. Mike's already been on. And then it sounds like Martin Seligman will be a good that's person too. That's exactly who I was going to say. Martin Seligman would be awesome to get on. And you know what? I'm going to email you later on because there were two other people I thought of earlier when I was just um, out walking my dog, and now I'm totally blanking on who they were, but um, I'll think of them. But Martin Seligman was one of them. Brilliant. Is this someone that you're in contact with? or um, One of them is. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you, um, and that means online, not personally. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you do to decompress? Um, me, I surf, I do yoga, and I, I mountain bike. And um, and then I do meditation every day. You do it in the morning or night? I do it in the evening. Brilliant. Is there any, any particular style that you like to do personally? Um, well, my favorite thing is I'm, I've been using this device probably the last six months or so called David Delight. And it's a audio visual simulator. You put these glasses on and you um, put some headphones in um, and you breathe along. It's six seconds in, six seconds out, which is the, the, um, the breathing rhythm that you use with meditation. And it, it, it's been the most amazing thing. My deep sleep's improved. My sleep has improved. Um, my HRV's gone up. Uh, it's been pretty awesome. That, that I've been using a lot. And then I do four, seven, eight breathing like throughout the day. Fantastic. I did a forward show today. Oh, you did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So four, seven, eight breathing is, I actually put a little thing on LinkedIn today. It's just a super easy, quick, um, uh, method which instantly activates your parasympathetic nervous system or your rest and relax part of your nervous system. Okay. Would you want to describe what it is for the people listening? Oh, I'd love to. Um, you uh, take the tip of your tongue and put it behind your front teeth. I, I call it your piggy spot, the, where if you take a bite of pizza that's too hot, you'll burn it. So you <laughs> tip of your tongue there, and then um, you're going to keep your tongue there throughout the whole exercise. And then you inhale through your nose for four seconds. You hold your breath for seven seconds. And then you exhale with a whooshing sound for eight seconds. And then you do that four rounds of that. 
Um, and they recommend for the first month that you just do four rounds at it, not to go over four rounds at once, but you can do it as many times a day as you want. So you could do four rounds like 12 times a day if you wanted. But I usually have people start with, you know, before they get out of bed in the morning and then before they go to bed at night, because those are kind of two easy times to remember. But I use it if I'm nervous about something, if I'm frustrated about something, if I'm sitting in traffic, um, if I can't fall back to sleep at night, it puts me back to sleep pretty quickly. I'll do like four, four to eight rounds of that. Um, and then I'll do six seconds in, six seconds out through my nose. And before I know it, I'm back to sleep. That's brilliant. Yeah, I used to actually focus on um, box breathing on the way to you know cardiac arrest or a fire or something that was going to get me a little little uh, jacked up and it was it was amazing how well it worked but it's for a for a profession whose air is finite on their back it's amazing how little we discuss breathing and breathing practices and diaphragmatic breathing and all these different areas where we could be so much more efficient and you know more relaxed when we get onto these calls yeah well i mean we talked about sleep deprivation a lot but when you're sleep deprived you actually breathe out or exhale less carbon dioxide and breathe in less oxygen. Oh, really? So you're, yeah. So your breathing with sleep deprivation is already inhibited. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a through line, isn't there? You need, <laughs> we need a bloody sleep. So. Get to sleep. Get to, <laughs> if you do anything. And, and that's one of the things we talk about in our in the sleep module is the transition. And we're talking about a 4896 schedule, which a lot of uh, departments have gone to. But just that that day, that first day off is critical to uh, restoring. Yeah. Well, the, the problem with the 4896 is the cognitive side to me. Like when you're already 25 out, 25, excuse me, when you're 24 hours without sleep, sounds like I need more sleep. Um, you're already functioning. This is like, this is a study of people that had perfect sleep, I think, up to this point, but you're functioning uh, the same as 0.1% blood alcohol. So yeah. the issue I have with the 96 is that's that's your baseline for day two. So, you know, I mean, some departments may not be that busy, but I know a lot of these departments are very busy. And I don't think that part is understood. You're driving lights and sirens at 3 a.m. on the second day, opposing traffic, you know, in this giant um, vehicle, just how dangerous that is. So, um, again, to me, it's a way of reframing the 56-hour work week instead of looking at it like we need to just reduce the hours worked in a week and fix it that way. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Brilliant. All right. Well, then let's just go over um, where people can find First in Wellness again, just to underline that. Yeah. So if you go to our website, www.firstinwellnessalllowercase.com, um, we're on LinkedIn as well. So if you want to, I, I try to post almost every day, just a little something. I've done a lot of posts on cancer lately. Um, those are the, the best ways. You can also, if you want to talk to me, um, you can call at 831-316-4669. Brilliant. All right. Well, Daniel, I want to say thank you so much. Firstly, for reaching out. Uh, it's been it's been so amazing as this thing has grown more and more people like today i've had about four or five guests suggested to me completely unsolicited and uh they're they're all amazing i can't wait to to talk to them as well but so thank you for reaching out thank you for you know connecting me with simon as well but this has been a great conversation because coming from a nutrition element but understanding not only functional medicine but but our profession i think is really invaluable because normally people get one or the other either a firefighter that's been 
slightly exposed like through a you know online nutrition course or something and i don't mean that to be patronizing at all or you get a you know a, a, an experienced person in the world of nutrition that doesn't understand the profession we do so it's kind of rare to find someone like yourself so i really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us today thanks so much for having me on and um and thank you for doing what you do like i said earlier i looked at your bio and it, it moved me to tears so keep it up